0: Hello and welcome to episode thirty nine of Booze, Booms and Busts, the podcast where we discuss marked events while quaffing a few beers that we haven't had before and rating them, of course. My name is Boaz Shoshan, and I'm joined, as ever, by Sam Balkering, Though we do have a special guest on this week's episode, which uh, I think uh, I think you're really gonna, I think you're gonna really enjoy listening to. And that is Akil Patel, who is a land and property cycles expert. Uh, we have worked together in the past, and so we this is mostly now as a uh, sort of a a uh, off-the-record capacity. Uh, Akhil has been doing some very interesting things recently in uh, in his own ventures when it comes to his research of property cycles and predicting the future based on those cycles. Now, Akhil, thank you very much for joining us. What have you been looking at this week, and what are you drinking for? Uh, well, what was your first beer for this podcast?
1: Okay, I'll start with the beer. So the first beer is a unfiltered lager, heller style beer. Mm. Um. The brewer is uh, lost and grounded. Oh, yeah. if lost, then I haven't. Uh, and I'm told, oh, sorry, it's at 4.4%. So maybe a bit weaker than you uh, instructed me to get. But the other one is... <laughs> so uh, so, so uh, I'll, I'll look forward to that in a second. Um, and I'm told it's, it's quite a kind of, it's got a slightly smoky flavour. I'm not sure what that means. Um, but I'll find out in a second.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Now, uh, Akhil, uh, I have a quite a. I think this is quite relevant question, actually. Uh, so, small, small sort of personal story here. One of my favourite pubs in Aberdeen uh, has shut down just over the last few days. I mean, the, it's it's such a sad story. In that lockdown should be ending at some point soon. They've made it this far, and it just didn't. It just didn't make it. It was a, It's a pub called the Illicit Still. It's one of the only pubs in Aberdeen that has some decent pool tables, um, and a very large, you know, very large underground area. It's a uh, you know very traditional old pub, and they've they've shut down, and it is just seems like a really sad story for me, and um, well for and and I believe for many of the many of the Aberdeen local residents. However, I was thinking about this. We've discussed the fate of the pub industry uh, many times on this podcast, as it is quite topical. But I was wondering, uh, when is a good time to buy a pub? Like, there are, must be, you know, <laughs> there have been so many of these pubs that have been completely ravaged by the lockdowns. The government really is not cutting them any slack, or not very much slack to, anyway. And uh, it is just a tragic story. But of course, you know, with every crisis, there's some some level of opportunity, or most most crises at least. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, with pubs shutting down, I was thinking if you were an aspiring publican, would now not be the best time to buy a pub? Now, with your own knowledge of land cycles and the location of pubs when they're inside towns and cities, do you think, I mean, it would now be a good time for somebody, somebody to buy a pub in general or to start a pub or open one?
1: Crikey, what a, what a question to start off with. So, um... I mean, the pub industry's had some pretty difficult years in general. Um, I mean, not least because I think if, if, as bizarre as it may seem, we've been drinking a lot less beer since the 1970s. Um, Obviously. Yeah, it is. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I suppose all this sort of health messaging has some effect uh, after all. Um, and, and so actually my understanding was that the only way that you could really make a pub work is very high volume uh, kind of fare, so, you know, cheap beer and cheap burgers, uh, so the Wetherspoons approach in, in many cases, or premium gastropub type, um, or a quasi restaurant with expensive beer and quite fancy food and so on. Um, and I think to make, and I presume you're, you, knowing, knowing you probably would opt for the latter. So I think the only time, the only thing that you would, could really say to make that work is if you manage to access a site relatively cheaply the thing is that good locations sites are not cheap because uh, an alternative use for for a pub um, location is residential housing and pubs usually come with quite a lot of space you know they have big windows and they've got several floors above it and a cellar underneath which can be converted into something else and so you're competing with that but if you were yeah. able to find a place which is relatively cheap and in an area where all the other pubs have closed because of the crisis, uh, then that would be the, that would be the uh, place to do it. And yes, if you can find that, then now is a good time to be investing in any property-based asset because we're at the midpoint of the cycle and we've got a few strong years to come.
0: Right, well, it's a very good, uh, a very good answer. You, I put you on the spot there, Akil, and uh, you've uh, you've delivered in spades there. Sam, what do you what do you make of it? Do you think you should be? Uh, do you think are you tempted? You know, do you not feel the desire to own a pub to get your booze for free?
2: Yeah. So you know what? It's it's a it's it's a two two sort of stories to this. There's the leasehold story and there's the freehold story. And if you're if you've got the cash to buy the freeholds uh and and do a bit of a land grab from a lot of pubs that are inevitably going to close down a lot of independents will probably close down from this then you'd be stupid not to be just hunting the market for properties uh the big the really big successful pub uh operators across the world uh have a shit ton of freeholds um yeah. <clears throat> that's where they make their money. And they don't, it's, it's, they're not like the best, the best pub companies in the world aren't really so much pub companies as they are REITs. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what the, what, how you'd have to consider it. If you were thinking about starting a pub in terms of the leasehold, then it's, it's, it's going to be a zero sum game, I think, because they get, like Akil said, they're basically one or two things. Wet led pubs are basically dead. So pubs that don't serve food, so just pure alcohol serving pubs, are pretty much dead for that for the reasons that, that Akil mentioned. And these are trends that are going to continue. You know, uh, healthy healthy living and and um, you know, let's just let's just be frank about it. The snowflake generation isn't you know all that sexed up about drinking at the pub as much as they used to be uh, back in my day. Um, so you know, wetland pubs are dead. So you are you're either high volume. Uh, including so cheap food but lots of it along with cheap booze but lots of it a la the weatherspoons model or as akil said you're a gastro pub, and so you're cutting at the higher end of the spectrum and so you can operate on, on better margins um with what you're dishing up um and i you know you've, you the, the big pub chains the big listed pub companies the likes of marston's the likes of um uh, Mitchell's and Butlers, um, you know that as soon as that they could actually start operating again, get a bit of cash flow through the door. They've extended a lot of banking covenants already, but you'd think that they'd probably go to market and raise some capital to acquire a lot of struggling chains and and, and leaseholds and freeholds uh, out there. So there's going to be some competition in that market, I think, for those spaces, which could keep you know some of the values higher than maybe they should. Um, but if you, if you've got the cash, you have got the resources, you have got the backing, I think as a land play, um, whether it be to actually operate a business out of it or you know, nothing wrong with buying some of these pubs and then flipping them into residential <laughs> either. So, um, yeah, I, I, if I had the cash, I'd be looking to buy some, there's some freeholds that is not, not the businesses.
1: Yeah, no, this is, I mean, you're right. Exactly. Right. Sam, it's a land play in, in, in the way that, um, you know, owning shares in Starbucks or McDonald's is actually also a land play they don't you know they don't really you know the burgers are made by people franchisees who are in many cases renting off them or have borrowed money to acquire sites and then paying them mortgage interest so um yeah it's a real estate cycle in action in many ways
0: yeah we should uh we could we should uh expand on that i think because uh, Akhil, you have a fascinating sort of unifying theory for of asset prices and how it all ties back to land and real estate ultimately uh, if you could uh sort of i know this is this is you know uh, rather barbaric but if you could sum it up or try to sum it up in in a small capsule for our listeners who may not be totally familiar with it uh could you do so and um yeah and and then we'll sort of loop it back into pubs and things like that
1: yeah sure so I mean the economy in in western countries uh, is driven by an eighteen year land cycle so it's not i mean it, you know people talk about it as a property cycle as a, as a land cycle, but it's really the economic cycle and so major periods of boom and bust uh, tie in with what's happening in the land market so typically you have a period of about fourteen years of of expansion where where prices are going up uh land prices that is are going up uh, and the economy is expanding and um growth is is you know can be slow can be uh, fast but it's generally go is generally expanding uh, and then that precipitates a major collapse in land prices because things go over the top as they always do because you know people love to speculate and earn money for nothing um and That collapses in a heap um, and brings down the banking system uh, because a lot of the speculation and the expansion was based upon bank credit. Uh, And that period of collapse takes a number of years to play out, typically around four years Uh, So for an overall 18-year cycle. So 14 years of expansion, four years of collapse. Um, And then the expansion itself is interrupted by a mid-cycle recession, Um, roughly in the middle, not always exactly. So you tend to get about two seven-year halves Uh, of the 14-year period
0: right now when did this latest 18-year cycle begin by your analysis uh
1: 2011 2012 the u.s tends to be slightly ahead of other countries um but you could certainly say by 2012 we were in the current cycle
2: just out of curiosity on that what what makes you said the u.s is is ahead of it what why why is that
1: Uh, I mean, it's a good question. Um, Probably, you know, it's still, I think technically still the world's largest economy, but certainly up to now, since at least the late 19th century, it's been the world's largest economy. Um, And a lot of the kind of flows, so basically what happens is the, the, the kind of central part of a city, of a country, and I guess of the global economy, recovers first. And so for example, if you take London, the centre of London recovered first before the outrages of London, and London in generally uh, uh, recovered out of the global financial crisis before other cities in the UK. So if you take that on a global scale, it's the, it starts in the US. Uh, you know they got their act together a bit quicker than in Europe, uh, and then um, and then uh, it started to spread out. And so typically, I think a lot of investors take their signals from what's going on in the U.S. And, you know, the U.S. economy being the biggest, it's importing a lot of things which, you know, bolsters economic activity elsewhere.
0: So with the uh, this cycle beginning in 2011-2012, so the mid-cycle slowdown uh, that separates the two seven-year halves that began in 2018-2019, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think things were starting to slow down in 2019. So the the yield curve inverted, I think, sometime in 2019. You know, PMI data was uh, suggesting that the slowdown was on the cards um, into the beginning of 2020. Um, and then, of course, we had a rather minor global event to exacerbate uh, the the recession. But you know, you know, people are talking about 2021 being extremely strong in terms of the rebound. Uh, and one of the reasons why things can rebound very quickly is that um, th- this recession hasn't involved uh, a major collapse in land values and it has uh, enabled the banking system to to continue doing what it does.
2: I'm, I'm curious, with something like the pandemic, right, there's like, I mean, y- you can somewhat, I suppose, model that because we, we have regular pandemics. What I find so weird about what's happened last year is the response there's never been like any response we've ever seen. It's certainly not like the responses that they planned for, for these kinds of pandemic events. So it's such an uh, anomaly. How does, how does something like what we've experienced in the last year impact uh, these cycles? Does it, like, does it change them at all? Or is it just a matter of it, it happens, but it doesn't really alter the, the bigger cycle?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I got a couple of points to that. So, I mean, the the, I mean, we've probably not had um, a global event where everyone was essentially told to stay at home for an extended period of time. I mean, we have actually had in private plan prior pandemics, at least on a regional basis in in the U.S., for example people were told you had stay-at-home orders so so it's not the case that this has never happened before but it's not it's, i think it'd be fair to say it's never happened globally because we're mm-hmm. much more integrated now um the because of the scale of that intervention um and you can you know we can argue till the cows come home about whether that was the right thing to do and whether they went over the top or they didn't do enough they didn't they acted too soon or acted too later you know um the re- i think the reality is that if you tell everyone to sit at home you temporarily cause a 10% fall in global gdp then the only adequate response is to put enough money into the global economy that you can preserve capacity uh, to keep it kind of at least frozen until such time as you clap your hands and tell everyone to get going now it doesn't in a sense it doesn't alter the overall cycle because um, you know, you, you are expecting a recession. We got a deeper recession than I was anticipating, but then we got a much greater response. Um, and because the banking system was okay and the land market was okay, you get the second half of the cycle. I mean, what I would say though is that as far as events go um, to start the second half of the cycle off, this is a lot milder than, say, the 1921 mid cycle recession which involved a real global pandemic that killed tens of millions of people, which shortly followed uh, a global war, which killed tens of millions of people. And then you had a major commodity collapse at, at the time when, you know, the global economy was largely a commodity based, you know, sort of agricultural sectors being the dominant sector in most, uh, most economies. So, um, and, and yet, you know, after that you had one of the biggest, uh, economic booms of all time so so um uh, it's not it's not unprecedented in in, in scale in that sense uh, and so i don't you know for me the the scale of the response uh, means that i think what i had already predicted would be the largest boom in history i think will be even bigger of a boom uh, oh
2: that's what our listeners like to hear <laughs> You know, Akhil,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: you know, Akil, I remember we had a chat, and this would have been in this would have been in 2019 in a pub in uh, in the city, and uh, it was because we we were discussing your mid-cycle slowdown, which we were on the cusp of at the time. So the the question was, what is you know what is the stock market going to do? What's the bond market going to do? Yeah. In the, in the, when this mid-cycle slowdown occurs, when we have this backdrop where asset prices can't be allowed to fall, or at least with sort of the Ben Bernanke idea, they can't be allowed to fall, where we need to create the wealth effect to make people feel rich, and therefore they'll spend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So with the mid-cycle slowdown, traditionally, this is leads to bear market in stocks, um, and you see, you know, fear arise, you know, people get shaken out of their investments. Uh, and it's that fear which is overcome in the second half of the cycle, which and, you know, which is overcome in a much greater manner uh, mm-hmm. where we see the the massive boom uh, sort of on steroids of, of, the, of the cycle uh, narrative that you describe. And, you know, when we were when we were speaking in the pub, I was saying, you know, governments aren't going to aren't going to let. You know, no, they don't want to let you know, stocks go down. So when we get to the point where uh, there is a mid-cycle slowdown, the government's going to intervene. They're going to print lots and lots of money and jam it into the financial system. And then, as a result, you know, if they manage to stave off a, uh, a, a stock market, uh, bear, well, a bear market in stocks, by the time that there is an economic recovery, well then, uh, you know, when good economic data starts filtering in, then, uh, you know, the boom just could be even, so imagine that, you know, the the government manages to keep the the stock market alive and then good economic data starts coming in on top. So it just becomes this, uh, this boom on steroids, you know, boom squared as it were. And that was in 2019. And now sort of looking, reflecting back on that conversation, because you said it was, it was possible at the time that that could occur. It does seem like that has occurred to a a certain degree when it comes to the amount of intervention that there has been in financial markets at least during the pandemic, but it just i you know i wasn't you know I, the idea of there being a pandemic that was a part of this it was completely you know it was completely not uh, not on the radar for me at all like when you're reflecting back on these uh, on the on this past you know two years well one year for the pandemic at least i mean were you surprised by anything because this does fit pretty well into your uh predictions for what the future holds
1: um well i mean obviously i didn't i didn't feel that we would be sitting at home for a year i mean i i, mean, I, I, I the last time i was in my office was on the 11th of march 2020 and I, I i never in my wildest dreams even when we were sort of told to work from home it kind of felt like it would be a couple of weeks and we'd be back in the office after easter mm. um but in relation to the stock market, so, I mean, th- there are other sort of financial cycles that I follow, uh, which kind of led me to believe that January 2020 would be a top in the market. Um, I, I think my observation of the bull market of the 2010s is that every time you do get a dip, it's very sharp, but relatively short. Um, and I think markets very quickly sort of got scared about, you know, how far the, um, the pandemic would go and how, you know, how significant the response would be, in, but firstly in terms of telling companies to stop working uh, and then in terms of um, enacting measures. And I think that's been reflected in, in the price action of, of companies. Um, so I, I don't, I was, you know, maybe I, you know, I never thought I'd be talking about spot oil prices at whatever they were in April, sort of negative 40 Dollars a barrel, but it kind of, in a sense, it makes it's quite logical because you, you know, you need to offload, you need to offload oil. No one's there are no takers because all the reserves are full and all the demand is dried up. Because
2: you because mean, no one. you mean, all the guys on Wall Street bets that were buying um buying the oil futures and then they the uh, oil contracts, and they realized they couldn't take actual delivery of forty barrels of exactly. oil at their mum and dad's and house.
1: And you know, all the super tankers are full, floating around and. You know, right. there are all the vats in that governments have and all the reserves are full Still, a so floating sort of floating
2: market sense. off the Singapore off Singapore coastline where you could literally just walk across oil tankers for about a, a mile
1: exactly exactly so you have to pay someone to offload the oil that's turning up at your on your doorstep so it's sort of but you know I never I never thought that would you know I never thought we'd necessarily see that um, so uh, so I suppose to answer your question is no I of course I didn't necessarily see that how things would unfold but i haven 't been altogether surprised by um, you know how markets have reacted and the fact that there 's been a swift rebound. I mean the other thing to say about this entire recession is that you get very few recessions where household aggregate balance sheets uh, increase um, and then you 've got a real pent up demand for people to go and spend some of it, whether it is in upgrading the quality of their home uh, it 's moving it 's uh, it's you know buying stuff off Amazon, or as I think we'll find out very quickly after the 12th of April, uh, going to the nearest pub and uh, drinking stuff under the table. Can
2: I can I ask a question on that actually in relation to property and things like that? So I've noticed that uh, in my in my local area right now, I have never seen more uh, development, renovations, extensions. Uh, and, and I know because I want to do one on my own house and I can't find a builder for the life of me. They're all busy. They're all booked out until the end of the year. It's, just, it's, it's like everybody that's had the capacity to is now improving the values of their property. And I'm wondering what impact that probably has then uh, with, with all of this is, does this, I mean, how does that, imp- I'm not sure. Like, how does that impact the, the property cycle?
1: No, it's, I mean, it's all part of it. So, I mean, you, there would have been periods in the, you know, the 2000s when home improvements was the key to unlock, you know, property prices and, and, you know, make, you know, people would, you know, start sort of painting the walls and plastering them, you know, just before selling and, and so on. And you, in a, in a heated property market, you know, a lick of paint can actually, well, it seems to, um, increase the value, though really what it is is the, is the underlying land, which is increasing in price. Um, I, think, I think what you've seen, and there's probably two things, one obviously is you, we've wanted to um, improve our working environment because, you know, you, you, you know, for the first time in our lives we spend the majority of our time at home as opposed to, at least in my case, using it more as a dormitory uh, than anything else. Um, uh, but the second thing is that, you know, um, with a stamp duty cut with uh, measures to uh, support first time buyers, you've got the, and then of course, um, you know, effectively furlough schemes have been, you know, there to help people keep paying the mortgage and keep paying the rent. Um, and so it, it's kept the property market fairly buoyant um, and, and uh, people are putting money in, in this case into improving their homes. Uh, At some point, it will be into selling them and and moving to places with bigger gardens, I guess, because I'm sure that we won't. This won't necessarily be a a short-term thing that everyone wants to have a nice garden to sit and read the paper in and have coffee and let the kids play in. So um, it it plays into it plays into a uh, uh, um, a pretty buoyant property market, and that's what you get in the second half. And then on top of that, uh, there'll be a lot of expenditure or improving transport connections yeah. I mean, that, you know that was announced in the March budget before the pandemic last year uh, across the you know towns outside london um, uh, you know other major infrastructure investments it all drives up land prices makes new locations desirable places uh, and then you know you go from there people will borrow more prices will get higher they'll go too far in certain areas uh, and then at, when the time is right, it will come down again.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always wondered, um, I mean, I've lived, I've lived here now for s- just over seven and a half years and um, have sort of seen the, 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 the furor and the conjecture and the optimism and the pessimism that surrounded the um, HS2 connections from London up to, to Birmingham then further north. I've, I've often wondered that with a, what they project to be like a 45 minute commute from Birmingham to uh, London, the impact that'll have on, on property values and around, uh, around the Midlands effectively.
1: Yeah.
0: Just to uh, interject, gents, uh, we should say what uh, well, we should rate the beers that we are having. Uh, I, I realize I haven't actually uh, introduced the, uh, the one I started with, which was Atomic Dog, which is a blueberry and grapefruit. Uh, no, sorry, a blueberry and red grape sour by Tuel, uh in Denmark. They're one of my favourite breweries. Uh, Sam, do, have you had this one on a previous podcast by any chance?
2: Uh, what's it? What's it called again? Sorry, Atomic Dog. Oh, hang on a second. I, I, I let me pull up. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a list. I've got a list. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. Atomic no actually it doesn't seem like i have i thought i oh, might right. have no well
0: but it oh, well, sounds up cool. my
2: alley it's a sour uh you know i love a sour so yeah mm-hmm. you
0: definitely, definitely need to have it um because this is really good i think i'm going to give this a double b whoa uh, yeah this is a quote, bow, wow, wow, blend of blueberry and red grape, making one fresh and fruity sour. Again, by 2Alt, it's got a pretty cool label. Well, I mean, I say pretty cool. I mean, it's a bit like a multicolored Excel spreadsheet, which can only be so exciting. <laughs> oh, I love an Excel spreadsheet too. What is
2: going on? I need this beer in my
0: life. <laughs> 5% ABV. So not too bad. Akhil, how would you rate that, that first beer that you had? Are you familiar with, uh, with the rating system that we have here?
1: No, I... That triple B is the highest given the um, yes, Akil gets it.
0: <laughs> yeah, perfect.
1: Perfect. Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a nice, eminently coughable beer, but I was probably expecting a little more, so I will give it a double A. Plus.
0: Double ah, yeah, that's pretty. Uh, <laughs> Akil is uh, taking no prisoners here. He's gone,
2: bad. he's gone hard and fast. What was the name of that one again, Akil? It's called um,
1: Lost and Grounded, unfiltered lager beer, so Heller's style.
2: Excellent. Yeah, I think I've had well, that one a long time ago. Uh, now, on the subject of beer, I have to make a confession, which I made off, off, uh, off air before, and I apologize to our listeners, but my order of my next round of beverages has not arrived on time. Hence, I am stuck drinking the exceptionally nice beer, Quantitative Ease, that we um, commissioned. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, for, for this episode, I am going to be drinking two 7.4% double IPA Quantitative Ease. Uh, and I will reinforce the point that it's a fucking good beer. Let's let's not beat around the bush here. And while it, it was a limited run, I think, Boaz, you probably have... The, the right to I- explain what is coming next. We, we talked about it last week, but uh, we're a little bit closer towards the release of our next commission.
0: Uh, yeah, that's quite right. Uh, very exciting stuff. We have indeed on our Twitter account, you can see the label, the upcoming label for uh, Blockhead, which will, is a deep amber ale, uh, 6.25% uh, to represent the 6.25 Bitcoin mining reward after the halving last year. And, uh, and of course, it's an amber ale as uh, Bitcoin is always viewed uh, with an orange logo for whatever reason. There are, but I think there are probably various different creation myths as to why it is that amber color. But you often find a lot of Bitcoiners referring to Bitcoin being an orange revolution or taking the orange pill. Uh, rather than the red or blue pill, and of course referencing the uh, the the orange revolution of uh, well, I mean, how long ago were the orange revolutions? Now it feels like a very long time ago.
2: Yeah. So like when you know the thing I like about uh, the upcoming Blockheads release is that the orange color of the label itself is perfectly suited to uh, to like you say the the Bitcoin orange or the orange pill as everybody likes to talk about online on, uh, on crypto Twitter. Um, and I, I noticed that there's now also a growing social movement to let Tesla uh, create a, a Bitcoin orange color for, for Teslas so that when people buy their Teslas with Bitcoin, which they can <laughs> now actually do, they can actually choose an option that is Bitcoin orange.
0: That is quite fitting, though. Uh, I, I'm surprised that they haven't started with uh, the Doge, the Dogecoin, um, the Dogecoin paint job, which has already been exhibited on a NASCAR That's uh, right. Car.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm surprised they aren't already offering the Dogecoin, uh, the Dogecoin paint job. It would look Did- very... I mean, the Dogecoin paint job on that NASCAR, what was that? 20- it was pretty good. It looked pretty cool. I mean, you had the moon in the background and the Doge yeah. at the front it looked pretty sharp the
2: the thing about it is though right i reckon though it's a bit like so i remember with the 2017 bitcoin um cycle that um you you knew somebody that had that had gone pretty much balls deep and yolo'd in on on onto crypto because they had personalized number plates so it was like they had on their on their car it doesn't matter what kind of car it was. If it was a Lambo, then you absolutely knew that it had a shit ton of crypto. But you're pretty yeah. much advertising to criminals, burglars, whoever, um, that you are a, 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 a significant crypto holder. And I feel that if all of a sudden you saw a Tesla rocking around your um, community that was Bitcoin orange, you'd have a fairly good idea that if criminals wanted to go and burgle somewhere, You'd probably just follow that Tesla home.
0: <laughs> you know, funnily enough, the uh, there was one Lambo uh, that I saw someone had taken an image of with a custom number plate, which actually I think would signal to any prospective burglar that there wasn't any crypto at this guy's house, because the number plate they'd picked was was uh, didn't hodl, which I thought was a very <laughs> uh, I thought was a very apt an apt description for what this guy had done. But no, you are right. I mean, but it is—it is incredibly good. That color—I need to find out what color it is. I, I remember seeing it when uh, when we made the label for it. You know, it was a very specific name for that. Yeah,
2: it's got like a, a number on the color spectrum.
0: Yeah, yeah, which you can use, which you can then input everywhere. Um, but yeah, it is, and it is, you know, and you know, in fairness, the Bitcoin Cash green is actually a very nice shade of green as well. But it isn't—it isn't as good. I mean, Bitcoin Cash B Cash. Maybe maybe it didn't it didn't succeed because the color just wasn't as good. It was just bad branding.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of like if it was green, you'd you'd you sort of associate green with the with like Jag or or Aston Martin, and I I feel like they're the kind of companies that wouldn't want to associate with Bitcoin Cash. Um, but I mean,
0: the green was it's like radioactive green.
2: I mean, you would never see a Jag painted in Bitcoin that's Cash true. green. It's it's funny. It's it's almost like all the colors that represent specific crypto are only best suited to Lambos. Yeah.
0: Yeah, is, is that a feature or is the bug? I don't, I don't know. You That's know, a here, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this because while uh, you know, you're not massively into the, the digital asset space, you, you are definitely an acute observer of it. Uh, and you have written recently about um, you know, looking, at, looking at Bitcoin specifically and how it's done so well during this period. And, you know, we are still in mid-cycle slowdown. How do you think digital assets relate to that, uh, that land and real estate cycle? Because ultimately, cyberspace is not, well, it, it is very, it's about as far away as one can get from
2: land and real estate. No, no, wait. I'm going cu- to jump in here and, and I'm going to ask a a question, which he may already know what it might be. But I'm going to let him answer your question first. But when he does, I'm coming in because I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on that, Boaz. Well, okay,
0: other Why than surface, other than, okay, wait, 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 wait. I'll add it, I'll add a clarifier then. Okay. <laughs> it is not that far away from real estate when it comes to the mining operations, because the land that can be used that is, you know, in very cold environments, like in well, also, you know, arguably Bitcoin is actually making land in places that were previously, you know, very, very, you know, cheap in that nobody wants to live in Svalbard, right? I mean, it's absolutely mm-hmm. freezing. Nobody really wants to live in Siberia. Uh, there probably wasn't land inside a load of mountains that there now is habitable land because people have bored holes into them in order to put Bitcoin mining rigs, etc. But I, just generally speaking, I would say that, well, you know, other, than, other than the mining operation, Bitcoin's still very much removed. Anyway, Akhil, what, what's your take on, on uh, BTC and how it relates to land in general?
1: Well, I think... I mean every, uh, uh, and I don't want to offend anyone who kind of feels that um, Bitcoin is the answer to everything. Oh, offend
2: away, <laughs> offend away. <Mark. laughs>
1: and every every single cycle involves a new form of um, kind of money, or, or a new vehicle for money going into real estate, uh, and I feel I feel Bitcoin has the potential to do the same thing this cycle. I mean, Bitcoin or some alternative. Decentralized token that will ultimately, in some way, support um, processing transactions in the real estate markets. So, you know, using blockchain technology to buy and sell land, or to create some kind of money that is used to acquire it. Uh, And that, you know, potentially, and if that, you know, if it if it were Bitcoin, and given the value of Bitcoin, the fact that it may, you know, we may see it double by the end of the year, for example. Um, if it were Bitcoin, then it would, you know, it could take an overheated property market and, you know, send it to space. Uh, right. So I, I don't, in that sense, don't see this as particularly different to any other real estate cycle. There's always some, there's there's always two things that you get, particularly in the second half of the cycle, some new way of creating money to acquire real estate, which drives prices up. Uh, and then the second thing is uh, a way of getting new investors uh, into the market. Uh, and, um, in that sense, cryptocurrency fulfills both. Um, uh, and you know, in previous cycles, it was other, it was other things. Um, and right. new investors.
2: Yeah, I reckon, I, th- I, th- I think you're spot on with that. I think what we're going to see is that a lot of these, I- I've said for a while that I think what, what, some of these decentralized networks and the crypto tokens that represent them have the potential to do. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, Boaz, in previous episodes when we've been talking about NFTs, is that I see a, a, a trajectory here where uh, in terms of property investment, it, it has the potential, at least, in terms of an idea. And we're still sort of quite very much in the experimental phase where people can get access to property investment Uh, easier than perhaps they would otherwise be able to do. And that comes back to the idea around tokenizing physical assets, where there's a a legal uh, representation of ownership of a physical asset in the digital space that can be freely and readily traded. So effectively talking about real time uh, property price valuations. And I think that we'll see, particularly in the property investment space, where you can, for example, let's say I build a, a, a commercial building, and instead of uh, that being in a in previously what might have been in a, a in a rate or something like that, I tokenize the entire building down to a hundred thousand tokens, each representing a, a value of that building. Uh, and a legal ownership to that building and, and a legal ownership to the rents that come from that building or any leases, all those sorts of things, uh, but also an, an obligation to cover things like rates and all that. Stuff. So all the, all the correct legal structures that, that exist today, but in a tokenized format that can be readily traded 24-7 anywhere in the world so that somebody from Japan, Australia, the US could buy a piece of a commercial building in London I think that's the future that potentially we, we look at when we talk about how these two worlds intertwine. Um, so I think that's, yeah. I think that's a good thing, actually. I mean, I, I, what's your view on that? If that's sort of how this ends up progressing?
1: Oh, uh, well, it'll just make the boom even bigger. So, you know, you'll have, so, I mean, I think even before sort of cryptocurrency became mainstream, the IMF was sort of observing around 2013, 2014, that, capital city real estate markets are becoming increasingly synchronized with each other so you know the property prices movements in london was more correlated to say hong kong than it was to birmingham for example um i mean to me that's not so much of an observation i mean there's there's some factors behind that which they probably didn't if, they, if you understood the real estate cycle you would understand that a bit better but the point was is that um it was largely driven by the flow of global capital so investors in hong kong you know, wanted a place to park money. So they looked at the London property market or New York or uh, Singapore or other places. Um, I mean, the tokenized uh, approach that you've just outlined takes that to another level. So not only is it the game for big investors, I mean, you might have an exchange where you can buy and sell bits of Monaco flat um, uh, and speculate. So yes, it it provides real-time valuations Uh, but it also enables a lot of money to go into ultimately what are fundamentally scarce assets uh, and drive the price up. And the the problem I suppose with um, on the other side of that uh, equation and the downside of it is that it can cause some pretty phenomenal collapses because one Mm -hmm. of the, one of the things that stops the property market really going down is the fact that when prices come down, people stop selling. And so so to a certain, I mean, that's not great for banks because they can't offload um, property at reasonable prices. Um, uh, and they. Uh, but actually it saves them ultimately because then they can just wait it out as long as they're supported by liquidity from the government. Um, but if they're forced to sell and, and the property market is frozen, then they have to sell at very low prices, which is obviously very bad for balance sheets if people are offloading these things in time and bits of flash and so on, I mean, I potentially that can lead to an outright collapse uh, in prices in certain areas, but I'm not really sure how that might play out. Uh, and I mean, this will be the test case, I suppose.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think it is very much experimental. The thing that actually you just mentioned, which sort of got me thinking was, I wonder if there's a, you know, a, 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 a very near future where, The banks are even shut out of things like development projects because developers, rather than go to the banks for funding to build a development, go to effectively do what what you would determine as as an initial token offering or something like that to raise the capital from token holders before the actual construction uh, commences to get enough of the capital to actually then do it.
1: I've even seen something a bit like that actually. Um, so it's starting a um, bit. Every real estate cycle involves some kind of shadow banking. So yeah. projects funded by other investors that are not part of the formal banking system. I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, banks do serve some kind of function. I mean, they, they obviously drive things over the top, partly because staff are incentivized in certain ways and they have shareholders and shareholders want to see, Growing earnings in the second half of every cycle, the thing that is growing the most is is the land market and uh, and lending money uh, for uh, acquiring properties is very lucrative for banks so so all the incentives, both internally and externally point towards directing business that way um, but having said that, banks you know they do have professional staff and they do know how to appraise projects and so on if you took all of that outside the banking system you don't necessarily guarantee uh, you get the same level of due diligence particularly as the second half progresses you get you get to increasingly speculative um, kind of investments where really there is no effective demand for whatever is being built um, but there's not the same level of care about kind of appraising uh, that risk uh, and so and so this you know this takes potentially takes uh, takes that story to another level
0: yeah you know funnily enough that conversation that i uh <laughs> that i referenced uh, earlier in this which uh know that we had in that pub in 2019 akil yeah it's just across we- from my office yeah yeah we just you know we uh we'd actually mentioned the, uh, the idea of tokenization of property uh, if somebody just took uh, you know legal title of property and then in fact, tokenized. It so that you could effectively buy you know, a, a sliver of every house on your street. Right? Imagine if you could do that and hold that almost as a portfolio. That was actually something I think we spoke about in that same conversation. And it does seem like you know, people are, things are pointing that way. I think the level of mania that could be achieved in that, you know, mm. it, when you look at how people uh, examine uh, houses nearby, you know, how much are they going for? Uh, Australians, of course, are. <laughs> it's a national pastime talking yeah. about how much your house is worth back in Australia. Exactly. I mean, just imagine mm-hmm. the kind of like um, the kind of money that could be achieved if you could buy a bit of your, you know, the house that your neighbour has that you're really jealous of, you know, that kind of thing. That could lead to such incredible excesses in mm-hmm. a in a in a in a booming housing market. It's a way that I you know it seems inevitable that it will happen to some degree, but in a yeah. way i'm I'm kind of afraid of it, but I am very aware that we we are getting on for time here, and we do have a bit more ground to cover um second beers that we're on also and also the bullish and bearish segment, which mm. uh, I hope everybody has prepared a topic for. Uh, <laughs> The second one I'm on is, Sam, one that I think you had and you really liked recently, which was Juicy IPA, which is a New England India Pale Ale. Um, I think that was maybe two episodes ago or maybe three. Um, and this is Beer Juiced by Ravens. Oh, yeah, made in Melbourne. Yeah, exactly. Where uh, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure people in Melbourne are crazy about, you know, how much each other's properties go for <laughs>
1: they are.
0: Um, in Victoria. Uh, I'm. I'm not massively. It's not bad, but I I'm, I'm not massively <laughs> into it. Uh, I'll give it. I think a B minus.
2: I think I'll be. Uh, I'll, I'll be.
0: Yeah, I'll be I'm, I'm surprised it B-.
2: by that. I've got. As I said, I've got the list here, and I so I know what I gave that uh, a rating for, and it wasn't as high as a B minus. Damn. Damn. <laughs> no, Wait, I. I gave, in, in, I gave that. An, I gave that an. I gave that an A. <laughs>
0: yeah well maybe i'm maybe i'm just being i'm so i'm is this the? I,
2: hang on this might be the very first time where i think you've rated a beer higher than i have <laughs> yeah quite possibly actually
0: maybe it's because i just like the atomic dog so much i'm just being generous <laughs> you're
2: in a you're, in a you're in a giving mood
0: giving, tonight i was uh, yeah giving the Australians so much stick for their <laughs> uh, their property mania that uh, i thought i'd you know hey you guys at least make some decent beer akil what about what's your second beer come on
1: i it's something called co- very absolutely called bumpy road um <laughs> it's a double ipa eight percent by beak brewery and it's it said it's quite soft um quite citrusy and it is and it's actually rather nice um it's not it was not very cheap i'm mean, amazed it's about eight pounds a can so yeah
2: the, the, the so ones great, that I had like, they're never, they're never cheap. They're like, as soon as they go to like eight, nine percent, it's like six, seven, eight quid a can. It's like, oh shit.
1: I'll probably only manage like two or three a night. Then, um,
2: what's what, the cycle in uh beer prices for uh high, high strength IPAs and diapers and new England I think IPAs?
1: at this point, we're so desperate for beer that we'll probably pay anything. I'll pay anything for it. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'd rate it. I'd give it a good rating. I thought I quite like it. So so let's say Double B.
2: Nice.
0: Very good. Very good. Very generous. And sorry,
2: the name of that one again was? Bumpy Road. Bumpy Road. Brewery. Brewery. Excellent. And Sam, are you still on the quantitative ease? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I, as I said, I, uh, I, I have not had my beer delivery. Uh, I am mm. on the quantitative ease. Um, it is as good as it was earlier and and equally as good as it was uh several weeks uh that i've been drinking this now do you know what's interesting though i so the ones i've been drinking tonight haven't been as chilled as some of the ones i've had prior and i think i enjoy it more uh let the, sort of more towards the room slightly you know slightly chilled but slightly below room temperature than the purely chilled ones i think it's better drunk not excessively chilled. Oh, that's
0: interesting. And uh, we'll be able to test this out because there is, in the pipeline, there is a new batch of quantitative ease being made. So uh, I'm, I'm very what? jealous, Sam, that you have any quantitative ease to be, to be drinking. I mean, I, I cleaned my, my stores out uh, a long time ago, but <laughs> there is more on the way for anybody, for anybody holding out out there because... I, I did receive emails uh, from some readers who were very annoyed that we it was such a limited run because it sold out very soon after uh, I sent an email out saying you know it's all you know it's live now and it's good to go uh, so I think it lasted two days in the online store and then but as soon as I, I sent out an email saying you know it's all live guys go go get it it sold out very fast indeed so it is a bigger batch this time so it should be able to withstand a lot of. Uh, you know, it's a very liquid market. It will be able to uh, withstand <laughs> a lot of buying pressure. Hang on a sec. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that will be coming in the pipeline after after Blockhead. Now, gents, uh, we must go to our uh, our bullish bearish segment. Yes. Uh, Akhil, I have outlined the outlined the rules, as it were, for for this. Um, I'll start us off just to uh, and I'll, we should be pretty rapid on it. I I would say in terms of my bullishness this week. Um, with the, with the illicit still going into closing down, it does feel to me like I am bullish on pubs at the moment. I do think that this is this is the bottom for pubs, and if you were to be in the mood for acquiring freehold, at least freehold ownership over pubs now would be a good time. Uh, I while Akhil and uh, Sam, both of you agree that uh, developing pubs into real estate. Uh, it's probably a pretty good trade i you know it does seem like an awful shame so i would uh, encourage anybody who may be a pub a pub owner who's listening to this uh even though you'll probably make more money doing it please don't develop the pub into 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 blocks of flats. no that's
1: that's right and and you you know having a good pub in the local area um is such a it's such a benefit that you'll probably push up everyone else's property prices so you're doing a, you're doing a public service uh, you, in two you, ways. you can <laughs> also
2: run that? a pub and still have apartments above it though
1: that's true that's true my local has got apartments above it and it's uh you know it's retained its nice features and best series.
2: of both worlds yeah Yeah, it's funny
0: that because uh, you know I think is it Sam Smith the pub chain uh, mm-hmm. where all of their beers are in-house or and their whiskey or everything is in-house um, and they' and they're closed on Sundays and everything like that. I think the I think the agreement for every all of the managers out of Sam Smith is you have to actually um, if you're the head manager you actually have to live there in the flat above it. Uh, it's it's okay. just part of the deal. Fair if enough. If you're
2: going to do that, you have to. You like have to being live
1: a vicar there. in the Church of England. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, Except uh, a far, far more <laughs> important role than the vicar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, uh, in terms of uh, well, we'll do the bullish ones first. Uh, Akhil, what are you bullish on at the moment?
1: Right. So. Um, I saw a story, uh, it's actually relating to Scotland, about how the birth rate had dropped during pandemic, because <laughs> um, this, is, this is not the story that I'm bullish about, by the way, but by way of context. Now, it's not surprising that a global pandemic might have uh, dampened the mood, shall we say, even though there were certain expectations of what people <laughs> have been doing in their spare time uh, during lockdown. Well, it just so happens that Germany, which has had sort of fairly terrible demographics um, over the last couple of decades, uh, is actually, well, we know what the Germans have been doing uh, over the last <laughs> year. Uh, and they, the birth rate has in fact gone up wow. um, over 2020. Now, the reason I'm bullish is because um, the property cycle rather bypassed Germany last time around, but they've been having a property boom uh, over the last sort of five or six years. And I think... Yep. Stories of rising demographics and so on will, um, will sort of it, obviously clearly the, these, uh, these babies being born the next sort of nine months won't be immediate property owners. But nevertheless, <laughs> it feeds into a story about uh, strong or improving demographics, which, of course, always supports a narrative of rising property prices. So I expect the property boom in Germany to be pretty significant over the next five years
0: that's that that is really interesting because you always associate uh you know central europe with poor demographics these days i, I hadn't heard about that at all it is yeah i, I really feel scotland's le- letting the side down there with uh, with the birth rate i mean i was i did speculate at the outset of this a year ago but you know what if we see a baby boom but uh,
1: you well, know, we'll, just, see a, uh we'll see a post-pandemic baby boom i think
0: Ah, yeah, yeah, I mean that once would make... the,
1: once the the danger has been averted and <laughs> people want to focus on what's important in life, um, <laughs> well, this might be one of those things.
0: Well I certainly I certainly <laughs> hope so, certainly in <laughs> Scotland at any rate. Sam, what are you uh, what would you be bullish on?
2: Yeah, I was, well, so I was just going to quickly add to that that I've done my part and I've, I'm, I'm adding one to the uh, population <laughs> oh, during delicious. lockdown. So there is one on the way due July. So we did our bit during lockdown to make sure we kept busy. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish at the moment on the British cannabis market, the, the um, medicinal cannabis market. I think that the UK right now is in a position very much where Australia was, I'd say sort of circa 2018, maybe 2017, 2018, I think it was, where I think what we're going to see in the next 12 to 18 months is a real explosion of uh, medicinal cannabis companies hit the UK market, hit the London Stock Exchange, and uh, some really strong, great companies are going to come out of it there's also going to be a bit of shit. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that the UK is, so Australia lagged Canada and the U S and the UK is lagging Australia, but I see a very similar, uh, opportunity emerging in the, in the medicinal cannabis space in the UK. And I, I think that's an area that's going to be really hot, uh, on the London stock exchange in the next 12 to 18 months.
1: Hmm.
0: That is an interesting, uh, an interesting theme that would, uh, like we could arrive, especially if you, if you got a reopening, right? And you've got this sort of libertine um, atmosphere where people are just like, I just want to do everything that I wasn't allowed to do over the past 12 months. And I want to do it two times more than I, I would have done anyway. It, it, the idea of the legalization of cannabis does seem like something that um, the government might do. just Because you know, you'd, you'd win a lot of votes, certainly from the millennial uh, demographic. Yeah, and I th- doing that.
2: I think what what, what's happening in the US now is that a lot more states are starting to open the recreational legalization. I don't think the UK is quite ready for that, but we'll definitely see an explosion of the medicinal side of things, which tends to lead the recreational side of things. And the, the, the beauty of a recreational legal market, which probably I think will come within the, de- the decade, is that it shuts down the black market almost instantly. Uh, depending on on the licensing regime and the ability to create quality, um, but I think in the next sort of by by twenty thirty, I think there's a lot to be excited about in this space.
0: Yeah, I remember there were some interesting stories uh, from the I think it was from the U.S. legalization effort where uh, cannabis dealers, obviously on the black market, were actually voting against the legalization because it was going to put them out of business. It's yep. this weird sort of dichotomy you enter. But we're all getting off for time. Uh, going on to the bearish segment. Uh, In terms of what I'm bearish on, I'm actually bearish on uh, (laughs) successful law enforcement operations against money laundering. Uh, And this is really just this. I'm kind of cheating here. Uh, This is me just saying I'm bullish on money laundering via the NFT market. (laughs) Non-fungible tokens, I think, are the new modern art when it comes to money laundering so i think the reason why you actually got any of the crazy valuations of modern art uh, where you know rubbish is just getting sold off for hundreds of thousands millions of dollars i think this is really just a product of money laundering uh, because modern art is so easy to just say oh well it's art so that's why it's gone for a lot of money i think nfts are actually taking the role of modern art when it comes to this because you know anyone because based on the kind of stuff that is getting auctioned off, uh, you know, you can say anything is, 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 a, is a decent NFT and there's somehow, there's somehow value to it. And as a result, this just creates the perfect thing that you would just, you know, you, you yourself would create a red pixel, for example, put it up online and then using a, de- using a wallet that's not associated with you, you could bid $900,000 for, for example. Uh, this feels to me like uh it this is this is a really rich avenue for money launderers to go down. And as a result, I think uh I, I'm bearish on law enforcement operations against money laundering. But I am I am cheating slightly there. Akhil, on your on what's on what's on your bearish book?
1: Um okay, this is a bit cheeky and it might might get me in the sack with um some of my friends at South Bank, but um I, I've noticed I've noticed uh, over time um whenever they're particularly pushing a certain product that uh, it tends to lead to a top in the market, at least temporarily. Uh, and so my inbox was inundated with um, uh, suggestions of buying sort of green energy stocks. I feel <laughs> at least temporarily, uh, I mean, I've actually, full disclosure, I've actually written about this to my readers at Cycles Trends and Forecasts about South Bank <laughs> indicator. So So I expect in the next sort of few weeks, we might see a top in in green energy stocks. But, you know, longer term, there's obviously a lot of sound fundamentals behind it.
0: Sam, on your bearish book this week?
2: I'm bearish on the length of ships.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right.
2: I I think that's pretty much self-explanatory. I think that we will will cease to see 400-meter-long cargo ships in the future, and that we'll see faster, shorter, Suez Canal-appropriate ships uh, in the future, which means that all the big ones are fucked.
0: (laughs) But, mate, why don't they just make the canal wider?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or or why not just make overtaking lanes? I mean, you know.
0: Yeah, there have been some rather amusing uh, ways uh, that have been proposed for clearing the Suez Canal, most of them involving explosives. That I have seen, Um, it will be interesting to see how the Ever Given uh, does. uh, You know how long it takes to get the damn thing out of there. Um, But yeah, it uh, this does seem to be. It feels to me like there's going to be sort of exponential problems that are created as a result of this, which nobody can foresee. Just in the way, you know, this changes the behavior of so many um, actors within supply chains uh, Mm. all over the place, and you know, it can be for commodities. It can be for the fuel that goes in the ships. It can be for the buyers of certain commodities. It can be, um, you know, just weird supply demand mismatches that take place because there's suddenly a load of stuff in one place that it wasn't expected. It will be very interesting to see how how that all turns out. But uh, Akil, uh, in just in terms of uh, closing remarks, and of course, where any of our listeners uh, can find you, uh, because it has been great having you on the show. Where, if, if someone wants more Akhil Patel, where should Click, they
1: Click, follow, subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can find me on uh, Twitter, uh, Akhil G. Patel. Um, most of my work is now done through uh, this venture I started with my friend, Phil Anderson, um, called Property Share Market Economics.
2: I, just, just to add in on that, I personally very much love Phil Anderson. I'm just going to throw that out there.
1: Very good. Yes, me too. I wrote this book called "The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking," which was the first book that really got me into studying uh, property cycles.
0: Oh, very good. In terms of, uh, uh, is it is it fair to say that maybe an upcoming upcoming release of any book in the future from yourself again? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I forgot to mention I am in the process.
2: <laughs> of, um, you had I'm, one I'm, job, kill.
1: <laughs> I am in the process of. Um, writing down what I know about property cycles um into something I've the working title is a secret wealth advantage. Um, And I distill the insights from studying historical property cycles, break them down in stages, and then tell investors what to look for and what to do about them at each stage. So hopefully that will be out later this year. But as I'm yet to fully complete the first draft, shall we say, um, you know, I need to I've got to get a move on.
2: We'll, we'll we'll definitely let everyone know about it when it's finished and uh and we might even we'll we'll if you've you'll we'll chuck some links up on our twitter page uh so that you can find the kill if you've been uh, interested in what he's been talking about today
0: well yeah and i i am hotly awaiting the the new book i as Akhil has, uh, has forgotten more than i will ever know about real estate uh, it would be good to have a reference book that will just, you know, I that would be able to at least, uh, I'd be able at least to point other people to if they are interested in uh, in the, the manner in which it all works. But I must say, Akil, uh, your, uh, your your theory of land cycles, the, the 14, plus 4, well, 14, 14 plus 4 cycle with the 14 years split into 7 plus 7, you know, I was uh, rather skeptical about it when I first came to South Bank. It did seem like too. Yeah, it was just too too simple. Uh, but as time's gone on, I have become progressively more convinced uh, that that you're right about it all. And I would encourage anybody who is uh, who is listening to this to uh, to at least follow Akhil on Twitter and have a look at some of the uh, more uh, more formal, should I say, uh, descriptions of how the cycle works, uh, because there's is fascinating stuff, and it and it is proving to be true to a to a very large degree. So definitely uh, give Akhil a look. And uh, and take a look at some of his work because it is very, very stimulating. But that does sum up the end of episode 39 of Booze, Booms and Busts. Uh, We shall be back again next week. In the meantime, I hope you're having a very good weekend. hope you're enjoying some decent beer in the meantime. Uh, But as I say, we shall be back next week with episode 40. We'll see you then.